Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. Its faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing environment. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. On Spectrum, we cover a wide range of topics that are important to our daily lives. We feature journalists, authors, scholars, policymakers, activists, scientists, innovators, and some people who just have fascinating stories. Today, we're talking with author, journalist, and longtime media critic, John Kieswetter. Over the years, he developed an ongoing relationship with colorful Cincinnati Reds broadcaster and former pitcher Joe Nuxall. In a heartwarming, funny, and sometimes touching book, Joe Nuxall, The Old Left-Hander and Me, John Kieswetter delivers wonderful stories about baseball and life. He shares some of them with us. John, your book, Joe Nuxall, The Old Left-Hander and Me, My Conversations with Joe Nuxall about the Reds, baseball, and broadcasting. Uh, For people who are not familiar with baseball or not familiar with the Cincinnati Reds, who's Joe Nuxall and why in the world did you choose him to write a book about Joe Nuxall um, was a beloved figure in Cincinnati Reds history, um, and he's also in the Hall of Fame as for being the youngest person to play in a baseball game. He played when he was uh, he pitched for the Reds in 1944 at age 15. This was a week after D-Day when when so many ball players were serving the military in World War II, so they needed all the players they can get. And they signed this 15 year old kid from Hamilton, Ohio, just up the road from Cincinnati. And he pitched. He only lasted two thirds of an inning, got shelled by Stan Musial. But then he pitched in the minors seven years and came back in 1952 and pitched for mostly the Reds, 15 to 16 seasons from 52 to, to 66. And then in 1967, he joined the radio team and was part of the radio team uh, with Al Michaels and then later uh, Marty Brenneman for 31 years uh, until his passing in 2007. So he was he was beloved as as a as a generous storyteller, um, Reds historian, and uh, just all around good guy in the Reds history. But but you covered for the bulk of your career. You covered media and entertainment. I know you personally are a big baseball fan and and sports fan. But how did you link up with Joe Nuxall? Well, I, I'll back up to say that when I was eight years old, the Reds went to the World Series in 1961, and I became a, a Reds fan. And the next year, Nuxall 
went five and zero. Oh. He's left-handed. I'm left-handed. I'm from just up the road in Middletown. He became my favorite player. Fast forward to the 1985 when I became TV critic of the Enquirer, and I decided the Cincinnati Enquirer, and decided that my purview would mean it's just not entertainment shows, but I would cover sports broadcasting, news broadcasting, etc. And so I would interview. I covered sports broadcasting and would interview Joe on and off for stories over about a 21-year period. But when I would get together with him, I'd get the information I needed for uh, whatever story I was writing, the daily story. And I'd always roll tape with an old cassette recorder. And then I'd get him to tell the stories that I would hear him tell it to the Rotary, the Optimist, uh, the Knights of Columbus, you know about uh, a spitball duel between Gaylord Perry and, and Reds pitcher Jim Maloney or or the time the Cubs bunted on him in Wrigley on wet grass and he fell on his butt two straight times and had a meltdown and tried to tear up his glove and threw it in the stands. Um, and I would ask him about playing with Ted Kozuski or, or Billy Martin or some of the Frank Robinson, some of the great red stars. He was, he was pitching when Rose came up in 63. And in fact, the day that Rose hit his first home run, uh, Joe Knoxall was the winning pitcher, starting and winning pitcher. His his career spanned all of that time in in baseball, but he's probably known to today's generation even as a broadcaster. Exactly. He he um, retired to the booth in in spring of '67, uh, and and was on the air thirtieth. Uh, and his big partnership was with was with uh, Marty Brenneman, a Hall of Fame announcer for the Reds. And um, even after Joe retired from full time in 2004, he continued to do games all the way through 2007 as a part timer uh, until his passing in in November of 2007. But yeah, that most of the people would probably remember him as a broadcaster because you have to go way back uh, to uh, there probably aren't many people around that saw him pitch in 44 and maybe not even in the 55 all-star game or the 56 all-star game being a local kid uh, in hamilton ohio not far from cincinnati how had he tried out for the reds when he was 15 how did they grab hold of him i know there was a paucity of players at right. that time because of the war, but how did they find Joe Nuxall? Uh, the Reds scouted his father in 1943 and came up to Hamilton and saw his father pitching um, in a in a league in Hamilton, and he and there was this big tall kid in right field, and actually the Reds made a pitch to to Orville Nuxall to to sign a minor league deal, but he had um, four kids. And he didn't want to go to Montana or, or you know, Kansas or wherever the Reds' farm team would be, uh, and it wouldn't be enough to raise a family. But the son caught their attention, and in February of '44, they signed him at age 15, and signed Joe. And the deal was he'd come, to, he'd take the bus down, he'd come down on weekends to sit in the dugout, and then after school was out in June of '44, they uh, at age 15, they, they let him pitch and he pitched in a blowout game with the Cardinals and, um, and 
his stats were, were pretty ugly in that game. Um, he um, he gave up f- um, four hits, two hits, f- and um, five walks, hit a batter. He, he got two outs and had two on. <laughs> When he realized that he, you know, he wasn't in playing for J- uh, Wilson Junior High School, that, that there was Stan Musial, the batting champ, was up, and uh, Musial hit a rocket to right, and uh, the wheels fell off, and and he never got the third out, and like I said, he went to the minors for seven years, and then he came back with the Reds in '52, and one writer noted that it only took him seven years to get that third out. <laughs> what? Back then, ball players didn't make the astronomical salaries that they they make no. today, no. and most of them had second jobs uh, during off season. Uh, what did Joe Nuxall do back in the day? Joe worked for a lot of of companies here in um, in Hamilton. One was called a State Stove that made uh, big uh, cast iron stoves that like would be in railroad cabooses. Uh, Mosler Safe is based in Hamilton, and he would be doing working for them. And uh, he told me, and his wife told me that he would kind of pick the company he worked for uh, if they had a good basketball team in the Hamilton Industrial League because his second love was basketball. And so he'd play basketball in the winter and played a lot of basketball and handball in the in the gym at the Hamilton Y. But yeah, you're right. Back then. Um, you know, the salary with the Reds was everything, but it but it didn't cover the full year and, and the off season. Every and he also did some he did some speaking and would ride with distributors and delivery guys um, for first for Burger Beer and then for Wiedemann Beer. And Both sponsors of the Reds, you know, it, it, sponsors of yeah. Reds Radio, right? right. And and in. Um, 1965, a, a legendary announcer by the name of Wade Hoyt, who was the Reds announcer, but his claim to fame was a pitcher on the 27 Yankees and a good friend of Babe Ruth, and would fill rain delays with stories about uh, the 27 Yankees and particularly uh, Babe Ruth. Um, so he re- he retired when they when Berger lost the beer rights and Wiedemann got it and. And after a year of Wiedemann, Wiedemann wanted an ex-player in the booth to tell some stories. So Joe retired at the age of 38 and went from the, the Reds pitching staff to the radio booth in, in opening day of 67. But he kept pitching. And that's another chapter in the book. I mean, right? we, we all watch baseball games and we see, you know, John Smoltz or Ron Darling or over the years uh, – Jim Palmer, Don Drysdale, Bob Gibson, all kinds of pitchers who have who have retired to the TV booth or broadcasting. Joe kept pitching. He pitched batting practice the day after his retirement and pitched batting practice for another 20 years. He was still pitching batting practice in the mid-80s when Pete Rose came back to the Reds uh, to be player manager and break uh, Ty Cobb's all-time hit record. He, uh, when he went to the booth, who did he announce with first? I know Al Michaels came along, but was Al Michaels his first? No, he, there, there was uh, two gentlemen, one by the name of Jim McIntyre, who was from Indiana and done some Indiana college sports. And the second person in the booth was a, a man named Claude Sullivan, 
who was the voice of the UK Wildcats. And Sullivan came up first to help um, Wade Hoyt in his last year, and then McIntyre and Sullivan. And as it turned out, Sullivan was having some voice problems and some health issues. And in Nux's first year in 67, Sullivan actually left the Reds midseason because of he was having throat and voice issues, which turned out to be cancer. And uh, he wanted to save his voice to do the UK Wildcats in the fall. And he did about half the season and, uh, and had several trips to the Mayo Clinic. And actually, he died at the end of the year um, in surgery up at, from complications uh, up at the Mayo Clinic. So um, Joe was the, the, a very big help. And so it wasn't a three-man booth for long. And then Jim McIntyre was there through the 1970 season, which was the first year for Riverfront Stadium and the Reds World Series with, with the Orioles. A beer change again from Wiedemann to Stroh's beer out of Detroit. And they wanted the different announcer. So they hired Al Michaels, 26 years old, uh, had never seen a major league game. But that's kind of the pattern in Cincinnati because Red Barber they hired in 1934. He had never seen a major league game. Uh, Michaels lasted three years and then went to San Francisco, which tripled his salary. And they hired a guy named Marty Brenneman from Virginia who had never seen a major league game. And uh, that was the beginning of Marty and Joe. But but the constant in all of this was Joe Nuxall, in in the sense that he traversed all of those people after Wade Hoyt, and was uh, still there with Al Michaels. In fact, there was some debate, was there not, about whether to keep Joe when Al Michaels came? That, that was I, I actually broke some news in the in the in the book. Yes, you when, did. <clears throat> uh, two things. One was. Uh, after the 70 World Series, in the, in the sponsor change, uh, Dick Wagner, the Reds executive, was walking down the hall and talked to the, the new director of broadcasting and said, you know, sh- should we keep Joe Nuxall? And and the guy, John Soller, was stunned to hear them questioning whether they should get rid of, of Nux. And he defended Nuxall and so did several others. So the, they, they didn't make the change. And also, uh, Al Michaels wasn't the first choice. The first choice for the Reds was a man named Harry Callis, who was in Houston, and he passed up the Reds to go to the Phillies uh, because he wanted to do radio and TV, and the Reds deal was just for radio. And Harry Callis had a long career at for the Philadelphia Phillies. In fact, he got the Frick Award at the Baseball Hall of Fame in 2002, two years after Marty Brenneman. So if he would have come here, he would have done fine. And one of the points I made in the book was, you know, they could have gotten rid of Joe Nuxall. They could have, uh, they hired Al Michaels instead. Uh, they could have hired uh, Harry Callis, and maybe Al Michaels doesn't come here. And Harry Callis stays here for his old career, so they, they don't hire Marty. Or they hire Al Michaels, and he likes Cincinnati, and he doesn't go back to the West Coast, and there's no opening for Marty. And, uh, and so there was, I kind of lay out the different ways that, right. that uh, fate could have had a different ending here. 
Joe Nuxall uh, was there as Al Michaels did three years, as you mentioned. Al Michaels really blossomed in those three years. The Reds were doing amazingly uh, during that period. Right. That was the period of the Big Red Machine, as it was called at the time. Uh, Al Michaels' career really got a jump start in Cincinnati before he went to to, to San Francisco. But then they went and hired this guy from uh, the from Virginia, Marty Brenneman. Very little experience. He he'd done minor league ball. Right. Uh, he came in. Joe Nuxall was the constant, and it was interesting in the book. Marty was intimidated by Joe when he first came in. And and Joe uh, Marty knew what he didn't know. I mean, he didn't know what he didn't know, and he he made it very really clear that that Joe took him under his wing, and 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 taught him the ropes, taught him the routines, and all the same as he had done with with uh, Al three years earlier. And and Marty, you know, that was one of the reasons that Marty and Joe were so close as friends. Because as Marty said, you know, he could have he could have had a big ego. He could have been um, bothered that, um, you know, he's got to train all these new young whippersnappers. And, um, and yet Joe was so gracious and kind and giving, and, and he really made it very, very easy to, for, uh, Marty to be accepted here in Cincinnati. And, uh, and, and to this day, he still praises, uh, Joe for being so, so gracious, um, and so helpful early on in his career. These guys were together 31 years. Now, you figure 162 baseball games a year. Plus 30, 30 in spring training. Yes, plus 30 in spring training. <laughs> For 31 years, uh, they had to be like brothers. They had to be like members of the family. It it got to the point, and Marty has said this often, that Joe could start a sentence and I could finish it, or Marty could start a, f- a sentence and Joe could finish it. Um, th- they were very close, and and uh, for for many years, uh, Marty had played golf in college and gave it up when he started his career. Uh, he was a voice of the Virginia Squires of the old ABA basketball league and did a lot of college football and basketball and and continued to do CBS. Uh, the NCAA regionals basketball. He would take time off from right. the Red Spring training, so he was he was well respected as an announcer. But he hadn't done base, and he'd done the New York Mets Tidewater Tides for a couple of years. But he hadn't done Major League Baseball. But he came here, and and um, and, and he really he blossomed as well. And the two of them grew to be good friends. And then later, Marty started playing golf, and the two of them became even closer. Because they'd get up on the road, and on the road they'd get up and and uh, get a seven o'clock tea time, and get in eighteen holes, and get back, and and then Joe could catch a nap, and then they'd go to the ballpark and do a night game, and get up and, and do it again the next day. <laughs> the, the, these guys uh, were, were close in in many ways, but one thing I want you to talk about is Marty's career uh, was not always smooth. Uh, Marty Brenneman, Hall of Fame announcer, had a tendency to uh, tick off the Reds' management, had a tendency to tick off fans on, on occasion. 
what role did Joe play in in those upheavals in Marty's career? Well, they, they were kind of like good cop, bad cop. Um, you know, that Marty could be critical of the team and Joe, the former player, I mean, he would be, he would criticize at times, but he knew how difficult it was to play the game and knew that, um, um, and, and was really, in many regards, still in his mind, a player mentality. I mean, he would, um, he would come early and he'd pitch batting practice and then he'd shower and usually catch a meal in the clubhouse and then come up to the press box. He wasn't there uh, with the rest of the media who would be eating in the media dining room. Um, so he always kind of had this, uh, you know, was closer to the players. Player mentality. Player mentality. And in fact, his uh, he's well known in, in Cincinnati that when somebody would hit a home run, or it could be a home run. You could hear him in the background while Marty's making the call, saying, "Get out of here! Get out of here! Get out of here!" <laughs> because in the dugout, um, he would be shouting that you know to, for the ball to get out of here, uh, whether he was pitching that day or not. Uh, and and Bob Euchre famously says, "Get up! Get up! Get out of here!" Because from the dugout vantage, you want the ball to get up and get out over the fence. Um, Joe was also, there was only, in the 32-year history of Riverfront Stadium, there was only two people who had a locker every year, every day. One was Joe Nuxall, because he pitched batting practice. He had retired by a player when the, when the park opened in 70. And the other was uh, Bernie Stowe, the equipment manager, who also had a locker. But uh, he was... Um, so he, he, he was always the – but I, I try to explain to people who had never heard him do play-by-play, he was, it was like your dad or your uncle <laughs> or your grandfather. Right. Sometimes he'd get confused. I mean, um, actually, when he retired, one of the radio stations did a promo that said nobody could call a fly ball to left-right center field like the old left-hander. <laughs> and, and I found a couple of instances listening to old games where he, he called the, the – left center, right center, and then he paused and he says, oh, there I go again. I just want to see if you're awake. We'll be back after this message. Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country. It offers a foundation of creativity and practice so that graduates can move the world forward. In particular, the Scripps College offers challenging coursework that holds students to high expectations and integrated curriculum that combines a variety of disciplines and ideas and student-driven media organizations where students can apply these skills and gain experience that enables them to hit the ground running upon graduation. That's the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. You have a portion in the book where uh, the the Reds uh, and Reds have Reds management uh, for anybody out of the the Cincinnati area have been notably cheap uh, uh, over over the years. 
and they looked at doing a radio TV combo here with these announcers. Uh, and Joe was stuck in the booth doing sometimes six innings of Reds baseball, play-by-play and analysis, while Marty was overdoing television. Right. Talk, talk about that and how that worked, because that was frustrating to Joe. It, it, it was. It was shortly right after I got uh, started writing the TV beat. Um, and this was back when there wasn't a, a cable like there was today. So the NBC affiliate in Cincinnati, WLWT, had been the home of the Reds since television arrived and the first games were on in 1946 40, or 47. Um, and so... Uh, what they did was they announced that WLWT boasted that the Reds radio, uh, the TV Reds TV network had Marty and Joe. Well, what they really had was Marty or Joe because <laughs> Marty would do uh, innings with, with the WLWT announcer. And then he'd come to radio for the fourth, fifth and sixth and Joe would go to TV. And uh, so that meant six innings in the first year that Joe had to do it alone and it was it was pretty painful to listen to. I mean, uh, sometimes he could get confused, but just when you had nobody to play off of, nobody to catch a breath, nobody to help you think through something. Uh, the second year, they actually added um, uh, WLW radio sportscaster Andy McWilliams to be Joe's partner on radio for those innings. But that first year, and particularly opening opening day, nineteen eighty six, I remember it. After the game that, that day, that night on Sports Talk, Bob Trumpy's Sports Talk, the phones just lit up. And it wasn't because the Reds won. It wasn't because Eric Davis did well or Mario Soto pitched well. It was because Marty and Joe weren't together on the radio or together on TV or together anywhere. They, they literally spent the two years uh, not being together on any of the TV dates. And uh, the fans were not happy. One other thing before we move on, and that is these two guys um, also did a series of Kroger ads. Kroger, <laughs> major uh, retailer in, in groceries uh, nationwide. Uh, but back then, they they weren't as big as they are today, and they wanted to do a series of advertisements. But... They wanted a major ad company, or at least their advisors, wanted a major ad production out of New York or Chicago or someplace else. But they settled on Marty and Joe. Talk about that, because those are those ads are iconic. One of the fun things in doing this, uh, doing the research was I tracked down some of the people who produced the spots and worked on them and actually have a jump drive. I'm looking at it right here on my desk of all 36 commercials they did for Kroger. And what happened was it was in 1984 and Kroger became a major sponsor on TV and their Chicago-based ad, ad agency said, well, get a player to be the front of the commercials. And the, the Sam Gingrich, who was the advertising director at Kroger, knew that there weren't any major players <clears throat> left. You had, you know, by that time, and, you know, you had the, the back-to-back -back championships of 75, 76 for the Big Red Machine. But by 1984, Bench had retired the year before. Rose was gone. Perez was gone. Foster uh, um, was gone. 
Geronimo was gone. Um, all the Billingham, Fred Norman was gone. Eastwick and McEnany in the bullpen were gone. Tom Seaver had come and gone. I mean, it, they literally had Davy Concepcion, Danny Dreesen, and Marty and Joe. And so the Kroger guy decided he wanted to do the ads with Marty and Joe, and uh, they, they and they were hilarious. And and so at that point, and also the, the Reds team wasn't very good, so Marty and Joe kind of uh, became local cultural icons. They weren't just Marty and Joe on the radio, but they were Marty and Joe also doing these hilarious Kroger commercials who were written very, very well. They had one where um, they were supposedly doing a game in the booth and, and Joe's calling the action and Marty, the phone rings and Marty picks it up and, and says, what, go to Kroger? What, get get the bread and milk and cost cutter specials? And Joe leans over and says, I can't believe your wife called during the game. And Marty puts a hand over the receiver and says, she didn't. It's your wife. <laughs> and, and another one they had, Joe, um, that was Marty's favorite. My favorite was Joe was, they, they were preparing, a, a, they were having a picnic. And Joe was cooking over the over this round uh, kettle uh, grill. And Marty's in the foreground and, and they're talking about all the great produce and the stuff from Kroger. And, and uh Joe would interrupt him and said, toss me an onion. They toss him, toss me a pepper, toss me a pepper, toss me this. And he tosses that. And finally, Marty goes, is there anything I can do? And Joe goes, yeah, toss the salad. And Joe picks, <laughs> uh, Marty picks up the big salad bowl and cocks his arm like he's going to throw it over his shoulder at Joe. Well, <laughs> Marty told me that in the, in, in one take, he told the cameraman to keep rolling, even if somebody yelled cut. Because when Joe said, yeah, toss the salad. <laughs> Marty leaned back and just threw the threw the whole salad bowl at Joe, at and uh, I don't have that outtake, but I've got several. Of the I mean, I've got some of the outtakes and a lot of. So I decided to do a a, a chapter on those commercials, and then there was a potato chip company company up in it was uh, I think Bell Fountain that um, up up north of Dayton that uh, they did. There was actually Marty and Joe potato chips for a couple of years. Uh, they did other kind of ads, but the ones that really nailed them the best. And, and the other thing that, that I learned, so they made Marty and Joe into this kind of this iconic comedy team for all these Kroger spots. And one day the producers are sitting around and said, you know, they're, they're so good. We could make a sitcom. We could make a sitcom called, <laughs> called Marty and Joe. We could make a sitcom called Marty and Joe, and maybe they'd live together in a part and live together like Bert and Ernie. <laughs> <laughs> and and Marge shot and her dog and a bunch of you know crazy people could be their neighbors and I just it, it blew me away I just so when I do uh, speaking appearances I and I do a PowerPoint I have a picture of Marty and Joe and I found a, a picture of Bert and Ernie of almost identical composition that I can put up side by side to, of uh, of Marty and Joe and Bert and Ernie John, the last thing I want to talk about it in relationship uh, to the book is uh, it, obviously it's it's centered on on baseball and broadcasting, but it also comes out what a family man Joe was for, with his wife and two sons, and how committed he was to southwestern Ohio, Hamilton County, and and the region. Can you talk about that some? Yeah, and I, I'm proud to say that a, a dollar from each book goes to the Nuxhall Foundation. Joe, Joe left quite a legacy that's that's very active here. Uh, 
largely through his his son Kim, and he has a second son uh, uh, Phil. But Joe, back in 1985, uh, started a, a golf outing, and he did scholarships that he gave to high school seniors to go to college. Something he never did. Um, in fact, his only experience in college was being a a color analyst for the Hamilton radio station, WMOH, when they did uh, Miami University basketball games. (laughs) He most famously, during one game, it was a score tied. Miami had the ball, and it was like only five or six seconds left, then down by the hoop. And Joe, live on the air, goes, shoot the damn thing. (laughs) (laughs) So he started this, this scholarship fund, and... And his son, Kim, was worried that they couldn't continue it after Joe passed in 2007, but they have been. And so uh, even through this year, um, they do a golf outing each year and they give out $28,000 a year in scholarships. That's 14 14, uh, scholarships to 14 high schools here in Butler County in the Hamilton area, either $2,000 to one person or $1,000 to two people. And... Next year they will uh, will be the thirty seventh year, and next year they will hit nine hundred thousand dollars that they have given out in Joe's name to high school seniors. Uh, the other thing that was started uh, before he died, but he didn't get to see the completion of it. They have what's called the Miracle League fields here in Fairfield, Ohio, and it's side by side all weather fields that uh, for the developmentally disabled disadvantaged to play baseball and they have devices and then every person gets the bat. Every person gets to go around the bases and scores. They have like a device for a person who's, who's paralyzed that they can blow on a tube and it will swing a bat. Every person who comes up to bat, they have video jumbotrons on both fields. And there's an announcer there that announces their name and puts their face on the scoreboard. I mean, it's just like a, a big league experience. Um, and it's they have adult leagues too. They say they have uh, people that play baseball there in the in the summer months from ages four to seventy four, and these are many people that played the playing the game that Joe loved and maybe playing the game that they didn't think they could. There, they two years ago also on the to the side of it built a handicapped accessible eighteen hole putt putt course, and they have like. A large, uh, large ceramic figures uh, of. They got one from the big giraffes up at Trader's World Flea Market of Monroe. Another one's a Frisch's Big Boy on one of the hole. And that 18th hole is like an eight foot high uh, fiberglass Joe Nuxall bobblehead uh, oh. at the, at the last hole. So it's it's an amazing thing. And their next goal for the Nuxall Foundation is to build a, a gymnasium next door to it. Where, so that would be uh, places for kids to have recreation year round. Um, just because you know gym space is so tight, when you got to account for all the basketball teams and volleyball and all. One of his other nicknames was Hamilton Joe, uh, besides the old uh, left-hander, right. uh, because of his connection with with that area. One ironic thing I did note in the book is that the golf course where they hold his golf outing 
he was a caddy at when he was a, a young boy trying to scrounge up some extra money? He told me that story years ago. And his son, Kim, said he, when he read the book, he didn't know that. Marty, who played golf with him for years, didn't know that. Yeah, he would bike up from the east end of Hamilton up to the Elks Club, which was on Ohio 4, halfway between Hamilton and Middletown. And he'd get he'd caddy and earn some money. And then he told me he went across the street to the hamburger span and spent it all before he got back home. Um, <laughs> But uh, and and in, in its heyday, when they then they did the golf outing at this very same golf course, and back in the day, you know, the the Reds players, the Reds coaches, you know, Kozuski and others would would show up. Uh, he was uh, the the other fun thing about the book that was that um, Kozuski, who was the big uh, burly first baseman, uh, led the National League with home runs several times in the early fifties and and had to cut off the sleeves of his uniform because his big muscular arms were too big for the tiny sleeves that came in the uniform. But he, he, Joe would told some great stories about he and clue that one of my favorite was Joe had walked the bases loaded and his temper was getting to him. And then he was two and O on the batter. And so clue calls times out and walks over to the mound from first base and Joe gets even madder and he, waves him back to first and says, you go back and play first base. I'm doing the pitching. And Kazuski stops dead in his tracks, glares at Nux and says, okay, when you going to start? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Joe was quite the hitter too. He, he, he uh, another one of his favorite, uh, he always loved the, when a pitcher would get a hit and he'd always say, if you swing the bat, you're dangerous. Uh, in his career, he had 15 home runs. Uh, including one off a of Whitey Ford in Yankee Stadium when the year Joe pitched for the Kansas City Athletics. In 56, you, you might even remember this team or hearing about the team. In 56, the Reds tied an all-time National League record for hitting 221 home runs in a season. Wow. And Kozuski, it was Frank Robinson's rookie year, a guy named Wally Post from from uh, up in St. Henry, Ohio, uh, Ed Bailey, uh, and, and, and Nux hit two that year to go with it. So in the hitting chapter, I talk about a, a number of different things and, and Nuxie's home runs, and, and it gave me a chance to tell a couple of stories about Kozuski as well. You do not have to be a baseball fan to uh, enjoy this, this, this book. The book, well, again, you. Joe Nuxall, The Old Left-Hander and Me, My Conversations with Joe Nuxall about the Reds, baseball and broadcasting by our guest, John Keysweater. John, how, how can people get a hold of this book if they're interested? Uh, the, the two ways are the best. I mean, it's in bookstores here in Cincinnati, but but the, the best way is uh, I have a website. Actually, my son made it for me. I'm not going to fool about it here. Um, here. Here's Analog Band doing tape recording interviews with a cassette recorder who has a website and an e-book. They do, my kids don't believe it. Um, so anyway, I have a website called tvkeys.com, T-V-K-I-E-S-E, the first five letters of my last name, tvkeys.com, and, and I'm, I'm self-publishing. So my publishing center is at the table right behind me in the living room, and I, <laughs> I label all the envelopes, I sign each book, and I mail them. And at this time of the year, I'm, I'm mailing them every day. So you can get it there from the website, and, and I'll sign it. 
it's also available at, at Amazon. Amazon has the, the same file and they print on demand and can get it to, you know, ship anywhere as well. I, in, in the first four weeks of the book was out, um, September, October, I think I shipped to 25 states, which was a testament to either how beloved Joe Nuxall is or how far Red's country stretches these days. And and uh, again, if they they get it from your website, uh, you you will sign it, and they'll get an autograph. I, I sign everyone, and there's a there's also a contact me on the on the website. So if you order a book and then or order more than one, and you want it signed to your dad or or a friend or a Reds fan or a baseball fan or something, uh, I've had people email me, and then I could what I, I'll marry that up with with their order. And, and can personalize it, but I definitely sign every book um, before I before I mail them out. John, one last thing quickly. I, I meant to get to this earlier, but it avoided me. The cover of the book is a caricature <laughs> of Joe Nuxall uh, tossing a baseball, and you off to his right side w- with a recorder. Who did that? And that that is just so classic. The, the cover was done by Jim Borgman, who was the Pulitzer Prize winning editorial cartoonist for the Enquirer for about 25 years. Uh, Jim's a dear friend. He started there a year after me. Um, Jim, like I said, won the Pulitzer for editorial cartooning. He also is still working. He's left the Enquirer, but he still does the, the comic strip called Zits, which is in papers across the nation and it and uh, the Sunday panel as well as the Monday through Saturday panel and he was an old friend he said you know if you ever do a book you do the cover and so I talked to him about it and then he then he got second thoughts he says you know if I do the cover people might not think that this is a serious book uh, and I said no 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 if you do the cover and and it's so wonderful it's like Joe's telling a story it it'd is be, it'd be clear that that one People in Cincinnati will recognize you and your and your artwork and know it's a Cincinnati book. Um, and the other thing is with this illustration on the cover, um, it just jumps out at you. And if that book's on the cover on a bookshelf at a bookstore with hundreds of other books that have just a photo or a graphic or, you know, a bunch of stylized type to try to sell them, you know, they see this this cartoon and, and they know it's going to be a fun book. And they know it's it, it, like I said, it, it just breaks through the clutter, and and it, it's it's been marvelous. His his uh, he, he's a dear friend, and and it's just that's contributed to the to the sales so far too. I'm sure. Well, John, best of luck with your book, and thank you for spending some time with us. It's really been fun. Thank you very much, Tom. Today, we've been talking with author and journalist John Keyswetter about his new book, Joe Nuxall, The Old Left-Hander and Me. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available through the NPR podcast directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it to one of your favorite podcast outlets. 
If you have questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. Have a good day, everyone.